Welcome to our podcast. My name is Keely Severson, and I'm here with Alicia Swamy and Eric Johnson, and together we are Exposing Mold. Today we are interviewing May Dooley. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All American Restoration. The first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. Welcome, May. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. May, I'm a bit familiar with some of the services that you offer. You do some mold sampling for people in the mold-injured community. Could you tell us more about your work? Yes, I started this work before mold was known to the public in 1994. In fact, my accountant had just said, I think you better look for a job. And the the big lawsuit in Texas uh, put mold on the map. And that was around 2000. And I've been uh, in it ever since. But the way I started, I had a, a course of study that dealt with more than mold. It dealt with um, gas leaks, uh, electromagnetic fields, and so on. But the way I started with mold was with a microscope. Um, I'm a former science teacher, so I'm aware of a microscope, although I have had to teach myself because there were and are no classes on studying mold in houses. I've put up information from a microscope standpoint. I should say that, of course. I've put up information on a new website because I've come to come to the conclusion that people have to do it for themselves. They've got to take responsibility for their own lives because the industry is uh, geared towards other things, such as lawsuits. Uh, so I started off um, my first inspection I brought tapes back to look at under the microscope. The second inspection, I said, well, if I were on the, back at the house, I would sample a few other areas. And I said, well, why don't I bring the microscope to the house? So that's what I did. And I've been doing it ever since for almost 25 years, uh, bringing a microscope to the house. I, I, we have less time these days because there's so many other things uh, to look at. We do so many samples in the house. 40 to 60 samples, but they're studied in-house because I find with when you have to send things to a lab, you can't do enough samples. The lab fees just add up too much. So these are all studied in-house. There is one lab that I recommend, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But things led from one thing to another. Uh, As I learned more about where mold grows in houses, I developed a list of the the routine places to check. For example, could there ever have been a toilet overflow? And could mold be in the water? Uh, in the water, in the sorry, in the the wall cavity. You, it's fairly easy to check that out. You can take a putty knife, put clear tape around it, slide the putty knife under base molding, look under the microscope. You either see mold or you don't see mold, which is um, a clue about uh, that. I work with culture plate air samples. Could there be mold behind, for example, finished walls in a basement? Just go to an outlet and stick the sampler up at the outlet, bang on the wall and take your sample. And you pretty much get a clue 
as to what's going on behind the walls. Now, a little bit of mold can give off a lot of spores, so it's not definitive of how much mold is in the wall cavity, but it's a clue that is worth uh, pursuing. As I went on, and, and incidentally, I have the list of where to check in the house if you were um, wanting to do, do my check. And I'll, I'll just briefly review them for you. But on the websites, I have the three websites, Teach Yourself Environmental Home Inspecting, because I'm trying to pass on to individuals what, what they can do on their own. And maybe somebody will um, feel the call and, and start in this business themselves. There's so few out there using a microscope, and it's the cheap tool to find something that's often invisible. Um, you can you can look, and it looks perfectly clean surface, and yet it can have high mold. So I I've had different clients who have bought their own microscopes and have have worked with the master list of pictures that I uh, provide on the website, um, all for do-it-yourself and empowerment former eighth grade science teacher and I'm the, the uh, I, I want to see people that can learn and carry on on their own without inspectors and lab fees and so on. And then oh I said I'd give you the list there. So if I went into a house, I would start think think what the question is that you want to answer. A lot of people go for the spot on the on the wall or on the piece of wood and, and that's what they sample the spot on the windowsill. Those are not the questions to ask. They're oftentimes they're just maintenance items. Go wipe it off, put a little borax on a sponge and wipe off the mold on the windowsill. It's just common cladosporium. It grows whenever there is um, condensation. It's on a refrigerator gasket, on air conditioning coils, which incidentally is why one reason why UV light is not that effective uh, other than the speed which the air comes past. But any black molds have melanin in them, which protect them from sunlight. So, and, and sunlight has the UVC. So, putting UV light on the mold just you now, mold can just light up with the UV light. It, it's uh, protected against it. So, the places I would check where does the water go? Inside sink cabinets. So, you sample inside them. Under base molding around water. I mentioned the toilet already. I would also check it by the dishwasher, by the refrigerator, under silk plates and exterior doors, under common walls with showers if you can't get into the shower access. Other places that mold might grow are in the basement because it's a damper area. With three tapes, I can pretty much diagnose a basement, an unfinished basement. Tape on ceiling joists, a tape on subflooring, and a tape under the bottom step. Those are the places where mold would grow. And uh, contents, can do, I can do a, uh, a composite sample, touching the tape to all the furniture in one room and looking under the microscope and seeing if there's mold growth there. Attic, again, the big questions, where is mold and where isn't it? The spot might, might tell you something. There are different patterns of mold growth in an attic. If there's not enough um, ventilation, you might find mold growing up where rafters meet the roof decking. That would be aspergillus. That might be a remediation project, although um, I have had clients that have had do-it-yourself approaches on that, which I'll talk about a little later. It's as, it's as important to know where mold isn't as to know where it is. So I, I would sample, that's why we call some controls. Um, what, what is the control area? It shows whether you, know, you need to remediate the whole basement or just a spot. So those are pretty important things. So that 
that led to talking more and more with with homeowners and renters. And I I would find people that are interested in this type of uh, service, this type of exploration. They either live too far away from me or more likely they they just couldn't afford an inspection. So I started an in-house modest fee review of tapes under the microscope. People send me tape samples, and I look and and, uh, give them a little report. Either there is mold and there isn't, or there isn't mold. And I'm giving them the guidelines of these 20 or so places to check that that they can find the mold. And many times I've said, in your area, if you are having an inspection, you, you may not have an inspector who uses a microscope. So you can augment the inspection by just sending me the tape samples and having them do the the routine test site. So that's kind of the way my business developed. I I did say that there was one lab that I do recommend, and that's for the air conditioning system. A lot of inspectors do a tape sample on the coils or take a look and they see some some platysporium and they think that's that's assessing the air conditioning system. There's bigger fish to fry with the air conditioning system. I do recommend a test with the same technology of the Army test, but it's it does more for less money. So I'm always in favor of that. And that's a test by Assured Bio Labs. The website is assuredbio.com, and it's a big two test. You, you click under do-it-yourself, D-I-Y test, and go to the big two, and it's the $85 version. So I would swab on the underside of a supply vent and that gives us a clue as to what's coming downstream. We take the, the mold species that are included. You get a, gen, a genus scan for Aspergillus penicillium. That means it scans for 400 species compared to fewer than 20 with army and two with herxmi. So 400 is, is about the best you're going to get on that. And then I've, I also add in the three species that are water-loving, which would point to a drainage issue or a humidifier gone bad with the AC system. So we have Stachybotrys, Trichoderma, and Chytomium, and then Cladosporium, of course, which is the most common in air conditioning systems. Based on those results, again, it's just a clue because there are many variables when you're doing a swab sample and when you're working with somebody's air conditioning supply vents. But the clue might give us numbers that are so high that we know there's something going on. And and if there's something going on, uh, routine um, cleaning is not going to get to the source because the source is likely to be in the air handler and it's not accessible to uh, a duct cleaner. So it probably would mean that you'd want to change out the air handler around $1,500 or so and, and then clean the rest of the duct work. If you have duct work that flex duct and the numbers are pretty pretty high, then then you have an issue that, that might have to be changed out because flex duct cannot be um, adequately cleaned if it has many mold particulates in it. That's kind of an overview of, of my service. And then we also, because it's not always mold, scan for other things as well. And this is all written up again, free free information and what where are some low-cost equipment that you can use on your own at home. It, it's written up at the teachyourselfenvironmentalhomeinspecting.com. Tell you a quick little story, a townhouse, a 100-year-old townhouse that I inspected. 
So the guy knew that his symptoms were related to the townhouse. He didn't have them outside. He had them inside. Brain fog, couldn't sleep, headache. Those were the three big ones. So mold. So he had mold remediation done. Symptoms didn't change. And what I did was, what he did, he found me somehow and called and he said, I think I need a microscope. There's mold here that hasn't been found. So I came down, 100-year-old townhouse, that's usually low risk for mold because it's, and it was renovated because uh, the old wood is not as conducive to mold growth as the new wood, the softer wood products. I didn't find any mold. In fact, I'm not so sure he needed the remediation to begin with. So I said, well, if it's not mold, maybe it's gas leaks. So I checked for gas leaks. Nothing, not mold and gas leaks. Maybe it's formaldehyde. Nope. And then I went back to him and I said, turn off your modem, which was maybe seven feet from where he was sitting. Turned it off. The pressure in his head lit up. And he called me the next week. He said, my symptoms are gone. I can sleep, no headaches, and I can think. And, and it was the EMFs in that case. I remember being at a conference on mold with um, Eckhart Johanning. Some of you may remember that name from, he, he does assessments of people that have been um, damaged by mold. And speaking with a woman from Canada, Mortgage, after one of the second sessions, and I said, there's a dozen, in dozen um, researches, research uh, projects that have confirmed increase of the permeability of the blood-brain barrier in the presence of electromagnetic fields. And I said, mold gases. And I remember, Eric, you wrote something about some of your worst exposures years ago were mold gases. The, that's, that's a big one. And she said, you'll never hear anything like that here. She said, in America, you measure. In Canada, we help people. And that, that has, that has, I've taken that to heart my company, just to help people to listen and and uh, make suggestions, not only for what can be corrected, but what is what does a healthy house look like? And keep it keep it simple. Keep it simple. A lot of things that you can do on your own to make things better and so on. So that's that's kind of the evolution of my business. And it's not something that I, I work as an expert witness. I'm not it's skilled in that area. If somebody has a lawsuit, I'll refer them out to someone else. This is for information for the, the client only. It's, it's on-site information. They, in fact, we, we have a social event uh, when we have an inspection. I, yesterday, I was at a house, and, and the woman was, took the radio frequency machine, and, and she found the sources of radio frequency, found high levels at, at her child's uh, sleeping area. And I was able to trace it down, what was going on. The sources happened to be the television, which could have been unplugged, the, the modem, of course, and a wireless uh, printer. And then her husband was doing the air samples. I was doing the tape samples. And then we, we switched when those things were done. And they did the vacuum cleaner and the samples for bacteria and drinking water while I was going down, checking for gas leaks. And, and it, it, they learn so much more that way, and we can cover more territory in less time, but it's still six to seven hours at an average house. So it's, it's a real community project and a lot of fun. Often, the more, not if some bad findings come for your house, it's not so much fun then, but they have tools for the rest of their lives with um, Healthy Home 101. Thank you for that explanation, May. I can really appreciate that you 
care to offer lower cost sampling services for people who just need verification that they could be exposed to something that's causing their illness. Because mold illness doesn't seem to be widely understood or widely accepted, I think just having access to be able to verify that mold is in your house and it could in fact be affecting your health for for not a cost of $7,000 or $13,000. I think that could really help a lot of families who who have water damage and they have kids with pans or autoimmune conditions or other family members that are sick and, they, and they're saying, could there be mold here? Could this be making me sick? And then some of these inspections can be so high end that it, it's not really a practical starting point when people just need to know just have a simple verification. So thank you for, for offering that service and making some of this information more accessible to families who are obviously in great need. I'm sure Alicia and Eric are going to have some questions about your services, so I'm going to just hand it over. Well, lately the uh, CDC has been focusing on Aspergillus versicolor. Do you have any experience with that? It's very, very common. But if you, whatever the mold is, because there's so much they don't know about mold, we aim for zero tolerance with mold growth in a house. And my my sense is if you make the environment unfriendly to mold, you're also making it unfriendly to the rest of its cousins, the bacteria, the actinomycetes, and, and so on. How do you make the environment unfriendly to mold? Well, we start in the basement. And I'm a big proponent. I have been Ever since I learned about, I began to learn about mold. I, I can remember saying when I took the um, original mold inspector course just to uh, just to have a credential on that, even though I'd been a mold inspector for some years by that point. I said if I had research money, the first place I'd put it in terms of prevention is in encapsulations and coatings. What can you put on wood to keep mold from growing? Because we're we're um, building our houses with something that mold eats. Uh, and uh, so I've been a big proponent of, of sealant at the end, either as a precaution or at the end of the job. Let's say in the basement, if it was a new house, I tell people paint every square inch of wood down here. And if it's not a new house and it, and it probably has some mold because it would be a minor miracle if you don't have some mold in a basement, then we basically kind of make a judgment. Is this a homeowner's do-it-yourself job or is it a, uh, a remediation job? And I have a great deal of respect for mold. Um, I've had thousands of stories over the years and some people are just super, super, super sensitive and they're the people that have to leave everything. Not everybody is on that level. I, I went to uh, a mold doctor that you would know the name years ago and was told based on my genetics, et cetera, that I'm the last person that should be a mold inspector. No, but it's not always the kiss of death. Your immune system may be strong enough. My issue before I, I went to him was the mercury toxicity from silver amalgams. And once I detoxed from that, got rid of the silver amalgams, my headaches left. I got my ambition back. And uh, if I had gone to a mold doctor nowadays with that complaint, of course, it would have been mold, you know, but it wasn't. It was the mercury toxicity. And he said that once you, your body is stronger and your immune system is stronger, uh, you'll be able to handle the other things. And that proved to be the case. 
And I'm smart enough to know that it's not good to live amongst mold and, and other pollutants and have a healthy home. But it, it's not always the mold. It just lost my train of thought where I was going with that. Sorry, you <laughs> asked me about oh, oh, the, um, the encapsulations. Yeah, so if it's not a if it's not a real bad situation where where you have visible mold, et cetera, and and I'll tell you two two ways to kind of determine that as a homeowner, um, then then maybe it's a do-it-yourself job. So here here's what I would do for a homeowner. Let's say you look you look up at your basement ceiling joists and you see some discoloration. One thing is to touch it with a clear tape. Hold the tape up to the light and see what you see. If you see nothing, it might just be a stain. If you see um, uh, crumbly stuff, it might just be dirt or something. If you see a film, then it could be mold. Another thing you can do is take a flashlight and hold it right against the wall, and, and it will um, in parallel with the wall, and then you can better see uh, fuzz sticking up on the wall. So a couple of things, if it's not a big area and you think you can handle this yourself, just get some, get a bottle of 12% hydrogen peroxide on Amazon for $12, $15 and spray it. That'll just make the mold dissolve if it's just a few areas. And then you could do your paint every square inch of the basement step, because if you see some spots, there's probably low levels of mold elsewhere. Uh, I know that this is a controversial issue in in the mold circles about painting but number one you want to protect vulnerable surfaces so painting will protect them and what if you cover some mold the paint has a mildicide in it it will kill the mold i've heard for 25 years old mold could grow back you have to scrape it off you have to sand it off you have to wipe it off whatever uh low levels i've never seen that happen and it just just paint over it and and uh uh, be done with it. Now, then the question will come, well, aren't you scattering mold particulates? I'm going to tell you about a, um, and the answer, of course, is, is to some degree, yes. So you want to handle these areas as gently as possible. But I want to tell you about a, a story that little experiment that a client of mine did. So I did the inspection. We found mold on the surface of one room and it was, it was big enough that it was a remediation job. So she hired the remediator. And we knew that there was going to be some cross-contamination because it was a, it was the surface mold and had been going on for a while. So the remediator said, you really should have this whole house. And we quoted a few thousand dollars to do it. So she and I talked and she decided she wanted to try it herself. Didn't know if it's going to work, but she wanted to try it herself. So she did this big two test and her numbers for Aspergillus penicillium, like the room right next to the remediated room, they were like 52,000. I mean, they were up there. This isn't spores, of course. This technology gives you, this technology gives you the spore equivalent. So if a spore dries out and disintegrates into 50 little pieces, it counts as 50 on the PCR test, on the ERMI test or on the big two test. So this woman got her readings. The stachybotrys readings were 5,000. And the as, as Penn, I think I said somewhere around 52,000, 62,000. High readings. You would really think that you need to have this room remediated. So she did four rooms and they all showed elevations. And her cleaning was not what you would 
think would be needed. She hired a commercial cleaning company because they had ladders and she gave them extendable mops and some spray to put on. So they went up and down the, the walls and the ceiling, got that done. And then she came in and she said, I don't think they even had to have a vacuum cleaner. Oh, this is this is heresy. <laughs> and then she came in with her her, her HEPA. She didn't have a fancy one, just a basic shark. And she did the final cleaning. And then she waited a bit and then she retested. The numbers were amazing. I mean, I wouldn't have guessed this. They went for Aspen, they went from 52,000 down to 180. Stacky botches went from 5,000 down to non-detect. And there were uh, two rooms were excellent like that. Two rooms weren't so good. And when we talked about the two rooms that weren't so good, she realized what she had done wrong. She had not cleaned the tops of window frames. And, and yet she forgot that she hadn't cleaned them. So she went and retested them. So two of the rooms had some old dust included in the readings. And, and it was a lesson. I mean, there's two lessons here. One lesson is to give hope to people what their clean, their own cleaning can accomplish. And the second lesson is how much a small area of old dust can skew the report num- numbers. And that was a lesson because where are we told to sample with the army test? Old dust under refrigerator on top of the, on top of window frames and so on. One of my clients who's mold literate was looking for a home and he sampled, he did Hermes on 25 houses. And he's mold literate. He's not choosing crappy houses. He thought these were all good. And the Hermes test failed on 24 of the 25. And the only one that it passed was new construction. So that, that tells you that these tests can be useful, but we need to understand what we're getting. And, and where to sample with them. So that that was was a lesson. So she just went back and had to reclean her her window frames and, and she should be good to go. So she saved herself some thousands of dollars. She said the remediator had wanted three thousand to clean the house and she ended up paying three hundred between the the other ones. And and then I also had another fellow. Now this was an unused attic, so it wasn't such a it wasn't it wasn't a living area. They didn't store things up there. There was no HVAC HVAC up there, and he um, decided he was going to address the Aspergillus himself. And he sent me before and after pictures, which are posted on the website. So he used nine percent hydrogen peroxide. He bought himself a gallon of twenty seven percent cent at a swimming pool supply store, twenty five dollars cut it down to 9%, two to one dilution, and sprayed it directly on the mold. I mean, this mold was like not marshmallows. This was not, not this um, <laughs> very uh, happy mold up there. And, and it disappeared. There was a white stain left behind. And he showed me those pictures before and after. And he said his next step, he was going to paint it. And, and he was done. I mean, he saved himself thousands of dollars on an attic, attic remediation. Is there mold? In mold spores in the insulation, of course there are. I mean, he, he wasn't doing a remediation level cleaning, but it was a good enough cleaning for an unused space that most likely had was not having health effects for him, and and it it, it met his needs. It wouldn't meet everybody's needs. It met his needs. So it's it's just like you said, Keely, before the people out there have have just been so in many cases traumatized by by the mold 
illness and doctor bills and and the inspection fees and everything and and we're just trying to give them alternatives. It's it, it's not always the uh, Rolls Royce alternative. It might be the do-it-yourself one. But if you can't do what you must, you must do what you can and and try to give information in the way that is the most practical and and safe for for folk as well. And not everybody can do this. I mean, I, I just want to underline that if if you are really really sensitive, be careful on on your approach. You may need a professional remediation. And I want to speak a minute about that too. I remember being on the phone with one client and uh, she had moved to a healthier place after being in a moldy place. And she was very, very sensitive. Somebody, her friend brought in a box of something from the old place and unwisely opened it in front of her. And within minutes, she had lost her ability to speak and she was on the floor in convulsions. So we have to have a great deal of respect for for these particles, as Dr. Shoemaker has taught us. Many of them are inflammogens, and and especially with stachybotrys, whatever we're reacting to there, we have to take that that seriously because people can lose their homes and their their possessions over that. But I I, I put this decision of how to approach your house on a triangle. I can give data. It's your situation. You may have the money to follow the data. You may not have it. And and the doctor's input. I don't know your immune system status and your health. And, and putting all those three together, try to find a, an approach that gives you peace of mind and, and is the best for your, your family and your circumstances and, and your health. Well, lately, Dr. Shoemaker is telling me that my focus on stachybotrys was all a mistake. But the problem is actinomycetes and not stachybotrys, and I probably never should have looked into it at all. <laughs> well, I can, I will tell you a quick little story. I, I am mold sensitive. Uh, maybe every two or three years I get a wallop from somebody's house. So this woman had one of these corner kitchen sink cabinets. It's hard to crawl in there and get to the back. And I'll do it for you. I, she said, I know there's some mold in the back. I'll take a tape sample and go in there, which she did. And I, I wasn't thinking to say, if it's visible mold, just do the little edge of it. Don't, don't disturb the mold. So she came back with two square inches of stachybotrys on the tape. And I felt that in my lungs for the next two weeks. I mean, it's like my lungs burned. So I, you don't have to convince me that um, you know, there's an issue with that mold. But you've um, heard my story, haven't you? I have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's basically what I did when I wanted to find out specifically what mold was doing this to me is I took a tape lift of stachybotrys, took it out to the desert, and that alone could recreate my symptoms just exactly as you say. Yeah, yeah. You know what? For actinomycetes, I heard another lab saying, another lab director saying, well, we have those on our bodies. So I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get into a lot of testing because if you change the environment, you, you've dealt with all of those things. I do point out two sources of actinomycetes can be one is cool mist humidifiers. Don't use them at all. Go to either warm mist or steam humidifiers if you have to have a humidifier. And the other can be air conditioning systems. And I, I think that that is a neglected area in the mold industry, the AC. That's a real important. Those are the lungs of the house. And we need to set them up in a way that they are self-sustaining. Tell you what I recommend. I've already talked about the how to test them. 
and how to keep the how, how how to deal with the air handler if that has to be changed out. So let's say you've you've cleaned it, you've tested it, and and it's ready to go. It's in good shape now. How do you keep it in good shape? And and how do you deal with another issue that's very very important? And I find in almost every house, and that's elevated carbon dioxide. It, not enough oxygen in the house. Need for ventilation. So the ideal is to do pressure. A pr- positive pressure. So we work with April Air mostly because they're in- industry leaders in this area. I don't. I mean, I don't work with them. I, I recommend them to to my clients. So you would, if you can envision a dehumidifier next to your HVAC system, you have a tube coming from a duct coming from the outside. It brings in fresh air. It filters it. It dehumidifies it, and then it passes it by another duct into the return area of your air conditioning. So now you have filtered, dehumidified, fresh air coming through your system out every duct and and you have the whole system dehumidified. So you're not going to get future mold growth. And that sets up your your unit and your house for de- filtered conditions, dehumidified air. It's about the best we know. And and I tell people you go to your HVAC company and um, say that you want this. And they say, oh, you don't need that. HRV is better. Heat recovery ventilator. And, and it's cheaper to run, gives you better air exchange. Well, those things are true. But the problem with it is it doesn't dehumidify fresh air coming in. So you get mold growth in the ductwork. You know? And that, that is not widely known. So we don't recommend HRV for that reason. If they can fix that problem, well and good. But any fresh air coming into your house should be dehumidified or you're, you're asking for a higher risk of mold growth. Okay, I'm curious about something. You mentioned uh, that you got a certification from the original mold inspector. Was that the Eastern New York Regional Occupational Health Center? No, no, that was the conference I went to, Johanning's conference. My certification was, I don't remember who now, but the with indoor air quality group, IACAC or something. Like that? No, that's the carpet people. That's not. That's not where I have certification from. But it's a national certification with the indoor air. So I started out with mold inspector certification, and and I have the CA, the Council Certified Microbial Consultant CMC. Yeah, I was just wondering where they got their certification, where they they derive their authority to talk about mold. Well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? They can say that for just about everybody in the industry, I think. It, it seems to me that these people are just printing up certificates when they haven't really researched the history of their subject matter. Do you know, this goes back years, and pro- <clears throat> excuse me, probably before they they knew as much as they know now about mold, but we're still in the wild, wild west when it comes to mold. Just let's talk, go into that troublesome area of mycotoxins in houses. I have more questions than I have answers. I can just tell you that I find it curious that of the two labs that that I know of that will do dust samples for mycotoxins, the instruction the instructions are opposite from the two labs. And one lab says we don't find them very often. One lab says we do. And I don't know if the the places that they tell people to check might have something to do with that. Do you do you sample visible mold? Or don't you? We know that exposure does uh, that presence 
does not equate to exposure. So if something is not volatile and it's in a wall cavity or in a basement storage room or something, if mycotoxins are there and they're not volatile, would you be exposed to them? Not that they, not that there aren't other parts of mold that are significant too and should be cleaned up, but talking about mycotoxins. So I have had maybe a dozen, 25, 25 people who have tested high in the urine test and, and wanted for peace of mind to sample their homes for mycotoxins. And we talked about it and decided that maybe sampling visible mold is the best judge um, sample where you're exposed. And 25 out of 25 have been negative have not found mycotoxins. So then I thought, well, let me write up a protocol just in case mycotoxins are there. What would that protocol look like? So I said, well, call the labs and see what they recommend. And what I've learned is that one lab that certifies product says, well, we've only certified one product and it's proprietary product. So it's not available to the public used by a mold remediation company in Florida. And that's all we've certified. And another lab says, well, we've certified a product too. And, and both labs say what their certification pro- process is. It's a test tube process. And, and then I say, well, what's the field experience? Don't have any. This is the state of our industry, you know, enough to drive you nuts. So what do I know? I'm hearing people coming to me saying, I'm throwing everything out with the mycotoxins. Where are they? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, well, you talk about the mycotoxin issue being very controversial. And back in the 1970s, mycotoxins weren't even known. When the sick building industry developed this concept of there being something in sick buildings, it was all chemicals, Legionnaires' disease, no mold. In fact, mold wasn't even discovered until the 1980s when Dr. William Croft was investigating a house in Chicago, whole house full of sick people, and he had Bruce Jarvis test for toxic mold, trichothecenes, and because Jarvis knew about stachybotrys, he was astounded that the high levels of trichothecenes had gone undetected. So this is really the first human health effects from toxic mold in the literature. This was 1986. Hmm. And prior to that, mycotoxins weren't even known at all. So these people who are issuing certificates for indoor air quality were doing so on the basis of chemicals and Legionnaires' disease, no knowledge of mold. And when mold was finally discovered, they started acting as if these certifications applied to mold when they had no knowledge, they hadn't even looked into it. Interesting. Interesting. So you that's know, why I ask about these certifications, because a lot of them are based on a, a false premise. Yeah. Listen, a large number of audience members have been reaching out after hearing my tragic COVID story of losing my family member because the hospital treating her refused to provide her the medication she needed to fight the virus. I appreciate all the love and support and my biggest piece of advice, advice that I've been providing over and over again is to begin multi-drug treatment day one of COVID symptoms. At mygotodoc.com, you can obtain help from Dr. Saeed Hader, who has treated over 40,000 COVID and COVID long-haul patients with zero deaths. Yes, you heard me, zero deaths. That's an impressive track record for sure. Once you sign up to become a patient at mygotodoc.com, you can send free messages to Dr. Hader's care team forever and obtain prescription medications from the most affordable pharmacies in the country that ship right to your door. 
And you don't have to deal with price gouging or corporate pharmacies that stop you from receiving the life-saving medications you need. Now, although we're hoping, fingers crossed, that Omicron means the end of the pandemic, many researchers are predicting another wave in a few months. That means high-risk patients need preventative treatment or at least meds on hand so they can start treatment fast. Low-risk patients often benefit from off-label meds because they can prevent long COVID. A recent article in Fortune magazine states that one of the pandemic's biggest mysteries, the symptoms of long COVID, may be playing a huge part in the millions of missing workers. Over 100 million Americans report having lingering effects of the virus. Now, thankfully, after learning all that I know and going through all that I went through, I signed myself and my family up for mygotodoc.com and stocked our medicine cabinets with all of the life-saving medications I wish I had for my deceased loved one. Please learn from my mistakes and prepare yourself today. MyGoToDoc.com is your go-to resource for COVID-19. Eric, could you also please explain to her what Dr. Strauss said about that one test that could find the concentration of mycotoxins and how that's not available and also maybe exudate? Because I think people get a false sense of security checking their dust, and that's not the only place you'd find them. Yeah, Dr. David Strauss, who investigated the Melinda Ballard case, who got sick on the spot and permanently, I guess he lost his hearing and he had all kinds of health effects from just going into that house for a short period of time. He realized that the uh, testing methods weren't correlating to people's sickness. So they concentrated vast volumes of air to bring up the level of toxins, concentrated toxins to the point where they, their testing could actually find them because it turns out that. These testing methods for trichothecines, for mycotoxins, they're simply not sensitive enough to find these pathogenic levels that people are actually inhaling in the real world situation. Interesting. There's also testing. You mentioned Bruce Jarvis a minute ago. He has a study that he that I, I wrote this sentence down to bring here. I believe this was in the around 2004, 2005. The principal mycotoxins that contaminate food and feed, and then he has in parenthesis aflatoxins, fumonitins, ofrotoxin A, deoxynitrophenol, xerelinone, are rarely, if ever, found in indoor environments. So I don't know how to put all this together. (laughs) Yeah, he doesn't list trichothecines. That's true. Well, prior to the sick building incidents of the late 1980s and early 1990s, the only avenue for exposure to mycotoxins was ingestion. People didn't even believe that it was possible to get enough exposure in the air to be a problem. Mm -hmm. So that was the paradigm shift is from the early 1990s through the late 1990s, it was apparent that inhalation was a problem, whereas this is previously unreported. What, What do you recommend for cleaning up mycotoxins or for testing for them, for that matter? I recommend nothing. I find that all the testing is unreliable. It's so uh, wrong that it's counterproductive, in my opinion. And the reason for that is when I did my uh, experiments with that sample of stachybotrys, the experts were assuring me that if you remove the spores and fragments, your problem is gone. That's Mm -hmm. it. And, And my sensations didn't really fit that. In fact, I took some contaminated objects, hard, non porous objects. 
both plastic and metal, and I washed them first using detergent and then going up to ammonia and bleach, and it had no effect. These still still slammed me. So I thought there's something wrong with this, this picture here. So I took that sample of Stachybotrys out to the desert and I walked into the wind so that I wouldn't contaminate the exterior of a HEPA vacuum cleaner bag, put it inside the bag, sealed it up with tape, and found that the effect came right through the bag. So this uh, idea that you could contain it within a, a HEPA system was not applicable to me. So I took this information to uh, Dr. Vincent Marinkovich, who at the time was the only mold specialist we had on the West Coast. There was Dr. Gary Ordog, but he wasn't really public like Dr. Marinkovich was. So he was the big name. And I thought, well, I'll go straight to the top guy. And so I told him that this concept of testing for spores and believing that containment of spores deals with the problem was, was wrong. And he got kind of shocked. And he told me about a housing project in Sweden that he had just heard about where all the inhabitants were sick and all the testing found nothing, nothing at all. I mean, it was as clean as could be. And it wasn't until they busted open the walls that they found stachybotrys so tightly sealed within the walls that no spores or fragments, no, nothing detectable was escaping. And yet everybody was still sick. And so I told Dr. Marinkovich, there you go. That confirms it. Something is coming right through the sheetrock. It's not contained. We have to warn people that this air sampling and their testing methods are unreliable. They're not adequate. And he goes, you're right. But then it never went anywhere. Yeah. Well, there's also the question of the MVOCs. What, what are people reacting to? Is it that? Can, can chemicals uh, get through the walls? I don't know. I have a, a client like that too. She could be walk around a room and say, I feel dizzy here in this stachybotrys in the wall. Exactly. So yeah. that was my point. I go, there's something so specific to stachybotrys that we should analyze this particular mold. And of course, I wondered if it was the chemicals, the other things, the bacteria that I was being exposed to. Well, that was simple enough to test. I took my sample of stachybotrys to the desert where there were no chemicals. I was in a tent. I sealed it up inside a HEPA bag, tried to make sure that I wasn't reacting to the bag. There was no problem with it until I put that stacky botrys inside and I found I could recreate my symptoms. So there I've isolated the substance without the any other chemicals. That's it, just the stacky botrys. So considering this showed up so many times in the sick building syndrome and in the original cohort of chronic fatigue syndrome, to me, that's more than enough evidence to warrant serious investigation into this one particular thing. Yeah, yeah, I'd go along with that. <laughs> yeah, good. So, so the yeah. question for me was, why wasn't this reported in the past? I mean, mold has been around for millions of years, so why is there no record of this? Mm -hmm. And when I looked at the places where stachybotrys was affecting people, where people were pointing at it, these were only the colonies that had access to fresh water. The uh, colonies that had been dried up and persisted in back rooms where there weren't water leaks, maybe it got going years ago, but it dried out, that hadn't really changed its value very much. Mm -hmm. People were complaining about mold to a certain extent, but the only places that really, really bothered them were areas that had lit up recently. And so this suggested to me that something was coming in in the atmosphere, getting into the water 
and feeding the mold something that it wasn't previously uh, using to process into a more pathogenic toxin. Mm-hmm. So with this model that something was feeding the mold and making it worse than it had been before, I applied this picture to people in buildings that were just recently having water leaks, and they were complaining in ways that they'd never complained before. Mm-hmm. So I told the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome researchers that based on my observations of mold acting in new ways, they could expect to see, in my own words, millions of people pointing at mold. So here, that was 35 years ago. And we've gone in that time from mold being completely unknown, disbelieved, you couldn't find any mold doctors, to now everybody's got a mold story, which suggests to me that my prediction that something was feeding the mold and making it worse fits the profile. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that's so, but you also have tests that are convincing people that they've got a problem, and then maybe they're connecting some of their symptoms with mold that may or may not belong there. It, it's a tough, tough business. And that's why I try to, as I said, keep it simple, make your house healthy, and then you don't have to worry about these things. And, and that can be easier said than done. I understand that. But not everything is mold. I, I've time to time tried to kind of talk people down from the cliff because they've been so frightened what they hear in these chat rooms that uh, they're, they're almost immobilized. And one woman, I used uh, the four questions, thework.com, and these questions can be very helpful. Now, this woman had lost two or three houses to mold before I knew her, so I don't know the situation, but I was inspecting the pre-purchase of the next house, and it was a good house. There was an area that needed remediation, and as soon as she heard that, she said, oh, am I making a mistake? I'm buying another house that I won't be able to live in. And uh, and no amount of talk could could uh, calm her fears or or help her to get past that um, hurdle. So I I used the four questions from that website. One, state your belief. I'm afraid buying this house is a mistake. Second question: Can you know that for sure? Well, no, I can't know it for sure. We could do remediation. All might be fine. Third question: How would you feel without the fear that buying the house would without the thought that buying the house would be a mistake? feel relaxed, we finally have a forever home for our family. And then the fourth question is grammatical turnaround. Buying the house would be a mistake because blah, blah, blah. Buying the house wouldn't be a mistake because blah, blah, blah. But when I turned it around to the house is afraid of me buying it, coming with my bad energy, she laughed and it broke the, broke the uh, tension. They bought the house. They did the remediation. More mold was found than anticipated. They cleaned it up and they're happy, happily ever after. So it, fear can play such a big part in so many people, and and they're getting these fears from the test results. Like I said, you could you could prove just about any house is uninhabitable with an army test testing and old dust. Yeah, well, the you've got people, as you say, walking into a building and pointing at any water stain or any black streak and freaking out. Yeah. Well, thanks to my experience of having a bad um, effect, a bad reaction to stachybotrys, but not all the other molds. I never had any fear of any other molds at all. In fact, I go into moldy places all the time. I scoop up mold with my bare hands. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, in fact, I, I was going with somebody to a, a house 
And I stirred up some aspergillus on some wood with my finger. And it's, oh, I wouldn't do that. And I'm going, I'll, I'll eat this on my peanut butter sandwich. No, no, no. We don't want to do this, Eric. <laughs> well, well, I would. Because as a carpenter, I was chopping up wood and with firewood. I've got wood that's covered with mold. It never bothered me. Never bothered me before. So I'm not going to worry about it now. So this has been a real advantage to me because I never had this fear of all these other molds, only the one particular sensation that I associate with stachybotrys. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that before, but aspergillus can be dangerous. It can grow in lung tissue. You know, in fact, the the last year's Toxic Mold Summit, there was an ear, nose, and throat doctor interviewed, and he said, show me mycotoxins in the urine. I'll show them to you in the sinus tissue. I got a call one Saturday night. The guy said, you should know my story. He was an energy raider, and as part of his job, he was up, up um, closing off vents, uh, sealing them, taking measurements, whatever he does. And he had a headache start, and it was aspergillus growing in his brain, had an operation, left with epilepsy, he went to his lungs. He's on the highest level. Uh, in those days, they called it the V-Bend. I, I don't know what that is, but it was an antifungal medication. So I have a healthy respect for other types of mold, too. And maybe you're fine. And I understand what you're saying. Well, no, no, no. You don't actually, because aspergillus is something we're inhaling all the time. The doctors say it's everywhere. You can't avoid it. And the pattern that I saw is that people who had stacky botches in their house then were getting aspergillus infections. So this suggested to me that the stachybotrys was such a powerful immune suppressor that they were getting infections that they wouldn't otherwise have. Interesting thought. So on that basis, I'm not going to be concerned about a mold that's everywhere, which can be infectious under certain circumstances, when if I inhale the immunosuppressive properties of stachybotrys, then to all intents and purposes, I don't have to worry about these secondary things. It's, it's hard to prove something like that. I mean, how can you prove that somebody had exposure to stachybotrys at some point? Well, not, we can't do it without if they refuse to research it. But if you do a um, mental model, a thought experiment of who gets stachybotrys poisoning, who gets aspergillus poisoning, and who gets mucormycosis or coccidiomycosis or uh, cryptococcus neoformans, it's amazing how people can be exposed to these things all the time without a problem but put a little stacky botches into the mix and they're down for the count. Okay. So I, I can learn something from you, but I, I will come back to zero tolerance for mold. If it's there, get rid of it. Because what the story, pe- stories of people that have reactions to Aspergillus penicillium are real. And I don't know their history, whether they've been exposed to stacky botches too. That's not my business. The doctor or whoever, you need a crystal ball in some cases for that. But I, I know that they're reacting to the mold in the house, and I can deal with that. If that makes sense. But that, to you. that zero tolerance is actually part of creating the fear in people's minds. You look for the mold and get rid of it safely. Keep it from coming back. Well, because if mold is now, we've got people saying, "Well, it's mold on the trees. It's mold in the grass. It's mold," and they are so freaked out mm-hmm. that they're paralyzed. They're scared to move. They're saying, "Don't bother to run from mold because you can't. It's everywhere." Mm-hmm. So I go completely the opposite way and go, the doctors are right. Mold is everywhere. And to me, there's only a very few pathogenic strains and I can sense them. And so long as I worry about those, I don't have to bother cleaning any other mold. I'll scoop it up with my hands. I'll have mold in my environment. I'll have mold on the dirt. I'll have mold on my bread, on my cheese. 
I don't care. Okay. I hear you. <laughs> and I believe that when the more I look at these few really powerful molds, I find that they are so overwhelming that they open a window of vulnerability that wouldn't otherwise exist. But it's really made it simple for me because I don't have to clean anything. I don't have to vacuum anything. I don't wash anything. I don't worry about anything. This, this one particular sensation that I associate with stachybotrys is the only thing that I pay any attention to. Okay. Registered. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> but the story that you had about the 100-year-old house, you know, people also have it so fixed in their minds that this is a problem that emerged in the 1970s after the oil embargo and everybody building tighter houses with more water leaks. Mm-hmm. Well, wait a minute. Why is it lighting up in 100-year-old houses? And why is it in certain areas where nothing has changed since the 1880s? So that idea doesn't fit either. And now we've got people running from new houses. For the People run from old houses because it's old, so it's got to grow mold. Or it's a new house, so it's got to grow mold. It's like the ideas are so contrary, so confusing, so contradictory, that people are paralyzed with fear and they don't know what to do. Yeah, that's why, to me, keep it simple. Look for the sources, safely get rid of them. Make sure you have a healthy home. Go on with your life. Don't make mold the center of your life. Yeah. Hmm. Well, also, when I realize this is very confusing and there's a lot to this, but my feeling that as a prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome, since this was reported in the original object and purpose of the syndrome, that when I approach a researcher, I shouldn't have to ask, ask twice to get research into this, let alone 35 years of wasted effort. <laughs> so I'm pretty upset at our research institutions when they're saying, no, we're the experts, we're going to inform you when their ideas are so confusing and so scary and so contradictory that they make no sense and they don't fit the facts. Yeah. When I started this business, Eric, My dad was the safety supervisor of a huge metropolitan gas company. And we were talking about uh, electromagnetics with the power line issue back in the 70s. And he said, he told me, he said, the smallest person can bring a lawsuit. They will bring the biggest legal guns against them because they don't want a precedent set. And maybe that goes for a lot of things. That's why I come back to you. If, If you don't, if I don't take this responsibility for my own life, make the home as as safe as I can with the with the insight I have. Nobody else is going to do it for me. Yeah, that's why my my websites are do it yourself oriented, and 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 we go from there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my uh, grandfather kind of told me a funny story. He said that back way long time ago, natural gas didn't have that odorant in it, mm-hmm. so there was no way to tell if you had a gas leak. And there were houses. He lived in San Francisco. And there were houses blowing up and gas leaks all the time, and mm-hmm. people didn't know about it. And finally, they introduced this uh, methyl mercaptans, the uh, odorant, which is mm-hmm. a sensitizing agent. That's why mm-hmm. we can tell it at such a low concentration, because it's, a, it's an irritant. Mm-hmm. And who knows what problems the methyl mercaptans is causing, because it does prime the immune system for a, a response. Mm-hmm. But the funny part is that people complained about it bitterly, because they said, well, the methyl mercaptans, that odorant, is causing gas leaks. I never had a gas leak in my house until they added that damned odorant. 
<laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. The thought process is a little bit backwards here. And I see yeah. that same pattern with the mold where people are blaming molds in general. I never had a problem with the mold. Well, maybe something did change. And I think we need to be taking a look at that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other questions or topics you would like to cover? I'm looking at my list to see what I might have here. The, yeah, I think I, I know I had an inspection couple of weeks ago, the woman met me and, and this was a doctor referral, how I got to her house. She said, um, I had two inspections done already. I liked both of the inspectors. I'd hired them ahead again. And by the time we finished with the microscope and all the other things that were done, checking the vacuum cleaner, et cetera, she said, I didn't learn one one hundredth from them as what I've learned from you. And this is not to sell my services. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to pass on what I've known, known on, the, on my website. So I would just uh, encourage people to, who want to do self-empowerment to uh, spend some time there. So May, you are spending six to seven hours with each client. Is that what I heard earlier or was that, was I mistaken? No, no, no that's it. Wow. Wow. That's incredible because most mm-hmm. testers will come in your house and they'll spend a maximum hour and that's if you're lucky <laughs> and then they're out of there. So to spend six or seven hours, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And a- another thing I'm really curious about is what is it that you're finding in your microscope analyses? What, what's a common thing or, or, or mold that you constantly see under your microscope? There, there are about a half a dozen that are really common. Aspergillus penicillin, very common markers for dampness for mold incidents for water incidents, rather. I see a lot of cladosporium. Anyway, you have condensation, you're going to see cladosporium. I see a lot of stachybotrys and chitomium, very common as well. And the others would be uh, lesser alternaria, um, that sort of thing. But on a breakdown, uh, Alicia, on the six to seven hours, so we might spend a half hour kind of getting oriented to the house, um, a tour and what the symptoms are, what they might be related to. And then I would do maybe, maybe it takes two hours to do the, the air samples. Now that the homeowner is usually doing them, not me. And I like the culture plate samples. I can study them at home for one thing in my home office. And I can also use them for better diagnosis instead of lumping all the spherical spores into ASPEN category. We, we know if it's ASPEN or, or, or Aspergillus or penicillium. We, we can sample wherever we want. Every room, every room air purifier with carbon in it, every humid dehumidifier, they can get nasty, especially if they're in a moldy basement. Wall cavities at, at outlets, below grade spaces, all of those places. And then I'm going around with the tape samples, um, every room again, whatever looks like, and, and a moisture meter, of course whatever looks like it could be a source of mold growth. These, it takes me another day to go through these and write a report for people. So it's kind of a two-day project on a house. And, and then we do the, the swab sample on the AC and then electromagnetic fields. So what we're doing there, magnetic fields, of course, everybody check that. Well, anybody who's in, in the EMF field, but we check the voltage at the beds because that has been associated with bedwetting and uh, sleep issues. 
So what can we do to reduce that? And that that's printed up on my website. That's uh, create your healthy home and just go to the EMF tab and body voltage. It'll tell you how to do it. You can do it for under a hundred dollars in equipment. And then we also do the Wi-Fi and that I had already mentioned that. And then check the vacuum cleaner, check the uh, products in the house, the laundry products, the cleaning products, <clears throat> going from least toxic products. I mentioned the carbon dioxide levels. They're, they're important because they, they more than anything convince people of the need for ventilation. Um, with carbon dioxide, the levels outside are typically under 500. Average house, 1,000. I've seen as high as 2,200 in a really tight house with several adults in it. And this is areas where you can feel sluggish and just not yourself. So that, that's a big ticket item. We use a laser particle counter not only for the vacuum, but also for the what's coming out the vent. Yesterday, the house, the inside levels were something like 12,000 particles um, per, per uh, size of volts forth and bigger per cubic foot. And when we checked the back, the um, what was coming out the vent, it was like seventeen thousand. So there, they needed not only an upgrade in the filter that they had, but they also needed to to eliminate bypass of air being sucked in from a basement in this case. And the way to do that is to take the filter out. They had a filter by the return. Put a flashlight or your cell phone in with the light on, and uh, shine it and see where the light comes out in the dark. And then what has to be sealed because those those areas are allowing basement air to be sucked in after the filter and it's getting up upstairs. So little things like that can make a big difference. And we also men- I mentioned gas leaks um, before. Bacteria in water. Now they had a Berkey filter and Berkey's always, well, I shouldn't say always, the ones I've tested um, have had elevated bacteria. Maybe that goes with the territory with that Berkey, because why wouldn't bacteria grow there? But I haven't had anyone do a test on the bacteria. Maybe it's not a non-pathogenic type. Maybe it's pathogenic. I don't know. I just deliver the the data, give them the options and see which way they want to go. What else can I think of? Uh, Those are carbon monoxide, of course. Yesterday, for example, I I showed the uh, homeowner a low-level carbon dioxide uh, meter. It, it has the readings down to five parts per million. The ones that people have in their homes, don't, the alarm goes off around 30 parts per million. So you could be living in a low level of carbon monoxide uh, and not even be aware of it. This is True Tech Tools, T-R-U-T-E-C-H. And the man pointed to the one he had and it was plugged in. And he said, is this okay? Well, it's not as sensitive. But the other thing is it's plugged in and carbon monoxide is slightly lower, lighter than air. So you really should have it up by the ceiling. I learned this in a Brooklyn um, basement. It was a small utility room. I found a gas leak. So they called the gas guy in. I hadn't even checked for carbon monoxide yet. And he checked uh, the hot water heater and he picked up carbon monoxide. And I said, there's a, uh, there's a carbon monoxide detector like two feet from where he picked up this, this leak the source. And he said, you would have to fill up the whole room before that would go off. So that's where I learned that lesson. And it turned out in Brooklyn that they had, a raccoon had gotten into the chimney and died there. So that was what was clogging it up. And they had a carbon monoxide uh, issue there. But those are those are the um, main things. I've also, um, this is 
kind of straddling an area, but a lot of people don't have enough light in their lives. And this is an environmental issue. Um, found a, this is again, a do-it-yourself thing, not to step on any doctor's toes, but this is a neurologist who studied 8,000 patients over 10 plus years in her business. And she has found uh, some real interesting findings between D3 on a different type of test than is commonly done, which is not as accurate at higher levels and and levels of B5. So that, that website is Dr. Dr. Gomenak, G-O-M-I-N-A-C, because light is just so foundational to health and, and our homes don't particularly have uh, what we need on that. So those are some of the things we, we, we never know what we'll find in a particular house. We never know just poking a tube down uh, along a pipe access beneath the sink cabinet might show something of elevated mold levels. One, one house, the woman said, I always react when I'm sitting on my living room couch. And she was in a, a city apartment with the parquet flooring. And I was there with the microscope when she, this was, before we knew about containment and all those things years ago, and just pulling up the parquet floors with the maintenance people, I tested until we got to the end of it, and and it was aspergillus and penicillin. So that was fixed, and uh, symptoms went away. Another issue that um, should be mentioned is these mini split, the ductless systems that a lot of people are going through instead of the central air, finding mold in them. Very difficult to clean them. One woman said it put it for two units. It took uh, her heating contractor all day long to uh, all afternoon long to clean them. It was two hundred dollars a pop, and to do that every year, they they just um, they are now selling kits and pouring something through them. But I I have no experience with that, so that's something I would be cautious about going into that realm. There, there's a very interesting website. Uh, Google Nate Adams Electrify. He's made, made a big study on electrification instead of fossil fuels with uh, the gas and the and the, then the oil. Gas stoves are certainly an issue. Mother Jones last uh, summer came out with an article on the history of gas stoves, and we don't recommend them. If you have to have a gas stove, try to get an exhaust to the outside over them because they are giving off all sorts of uh, nasties into room air. Attached garages, the studies that show over 80% of houses with attached garages have infiltration of car exhaust. They're okay if the, the garages are okay if they're set up right, maybe seal off all the entries into the room air and seal up around the door and underneath weather strip, and then perhaps put a timer on the uh, 45 minutes or so after a car comes and goes, that sort of thing. Watch the little Chernobyl areas in the house, the paint pens. So Jeff May in his book, My House is Killing Me, that's the original uh, edition. I hope it's in the second one that came out a year ago. Talks about putting, when you're sealing a paint pan, put plastic wrap over the top and then put the top on and, and uh, store it upside down so you don't get uh, gas uh, paint fumes coming out. It's a lot that can be done. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, you made a comment earlier about new wood being a problem versus old wood that was used in home building. Can you explain the difference and why new wood that's used today is more problematic? Well, for one thing, a lot of it is pressed wood. 
and has a lot of formaldehyde in it, uh, or it may have formaldehyde. One uh, researcher estimated if you have a kitchen with, let's say, eight cabinets in it, and it has pressed wood shelving, figure you have 11 pounds of formaldehyde in that. And they've done, they did a study with old cabinets and found that it was still off gassing. So if you can do anything in a kitchen, do solid wood cabinets. The pressed wood is more, I, I would say, I, I don't know the, the wood industry. I find some wood has had a high level of mold on it. One man in a new house, two-year-old house, he, he said, I can't go in this house. He had to go in with a spacesuit on. And he'd hired the best company he could find in Jersey. And they found nothing. Did They tested from stem to stern. So somebody told him about me in the microscope and took him three months. He'd already had the best. Why does he want to hire somebody else? But I came in finally. He had no, no other options. And the whole basement ceiling, which was pressed wood, except for, for the Joyce OSB, was, well, they might have been uh, OSB too, I don't recall, but it was covered with aspergillus. And, and it didn't show up in the air sample. It was bothering him. And, uh, and, that was that was the cause of it. And then I checked on Stacky Botchers a couple of places. His wife had over overwatered plants upstairs, and they the water soaked into the wood floor. Wood wood floor. Also, the older pressed wood shelves. His shelves were covered with aspergillus, and the the newer ones. And this is why I brought up this story. The newer ones don't grow the the mold the way the old ones did. So I think they're adding something to this, these pressed wood products that may keep them from growing um, mold. I inspected a, a new house a couple of weeks ago, and the only place I found some mold, <laughs> this was under construction, was on a door frame and a window frame, I think, in, in the basement, and then some that had come in on mold in the attic. That was mostly cladosporium, not so significant, and I suggested to the builder, that he just spray it with the uh, higher percentage hydrogen peroxide and then paint it. So that's what he was going to do. Awesome. Yeah. Going back to what Eric was saying, how stachybotrys is the the medium, the the medium agent that is causing the the infections, the sensitivities, and that's why he feels, and also in our experience, why some people get MCS, multiple chemical sensitivities, because the stachybotrys is actually just deteriorating, deteriorating the lung lining, allowing to uh, bring any chemical or anything that is not normal, anything that's man-made, and it begins to disturb the body or create allergenic responses. And so that's kind of what we feel is going on. And something that you said earlier, I don't quite agree with, and I, I don't think it's the best advice, but we can agree to disagree. I don't think it I don't think people should be painting over and spraying hydrogen peroxide. I think if there is water damage, maybe finding the source, maybe that's something that you meant to say and forgot to say, but I think it's very important to find the source first and, and to make sure that has completely stopped. Because I think if you're just spraying hydrogen and painting over it, 
you're going to keep having the same problem and you're going to have to keep doing the same thing. And that's kind of what happened in my home when we had molds. We, if we didn't, we didn't find the source. We were basically throwing darts at a move at a moving target, I guess you can say. So is that something that you still stand by spraying and painting, or do you feel like finding the source and removing or stopping the leak and then removing those, those materials with fresh materials is a better way of handling something? The context of what I was talking about there, I think, was a, a basement, and that might not have a source. Basements are damper. I think every every bit of wood should be painted in a below grade space, and and that that yeah, of course that that would be common sense to find the source and correct that before sure. But some things can't easily be disassembled, and and in some cases uh, people can't afford to even when they can. So it gives another option. Yeah. Like I said, I haven't had mold grow back. We're not talking about painting over visible mold, not a lot of mold. That's another issue, but it's it's worked for me for 25 years. Yeah. I've never had a house that I can remember where somebody couldn't, I mean, some, of course, some people left homes that that's understood, but I can't remember any where uh, a good remediation job was done that they couldn't stay there. And, and and maybe that that's something to talk about. What is a good remediation job? Because in in 25 years in this business, I would I could count the remediation companies on on one finger that I really have confidence in, and that's that's pretty sad. If I were looking for a remediator as a homeowner, I would know what I want done first, because there's a lot of gadgetry in this business, and somebody comes in and fogs and thinks they're going to solve everything is is a gadget. Um, I was just going to ask you your thoughts on fogging because we were sold that lie and it just made everything worse. I actually, it made everything so much more unlivable for me that I had to leave. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. stay home after the fogging event. So, yeah. So, you know, the, the industry guidelines are find the, deal with the moisture, find the source, clean, have a vacuum, clean, have a vacuum. And they may or may not encapsulate. If somebody just follows that in a meticulous way, I mean, they do a pretty good job in, in general. As, as far as my my people that I've had experience with, one one woman had two local companies. Each one made it worse than the other, and she brought in a company I had told her about, and it took them a lot more to clean because such a mess had been made by the other two. But she was able to get back in her house. And that was industry guidelines. We've all, we always work for people who are sensitive, meaning no, no chemicals. The chemicals that or the products that were mostly used, I could tell you, is again just basic hydrogen peroxide wiping down after HEPA vacuuming. And then they used a Caliwell, which is online with Home Depot. It, it's registered for remediation projects. I do point out if you're really sensitive, it might not be the best first product for you because they do have a petroleum binder in it. And for those people who could still tolerate latex paint, no BSE, I recommend uh, earthpaint.net. They have some like Lime Prime, which is probably like Caliwell without the uh, binder. And that's been good for them. If nobody, if they can't tolerate paint at all, then maybe just mix up some whitewash and, and paint that on that will last for a while and 
and um, and then the cleaning, final cleaning of the air and final vacuuming. Um, maybe start with a quarter vacuum, something like the Euroclean GD930, and then and that's available for $400. It, it doesn't test really good with the particle counter because the filter is after is before the motor instead of after the motor, so you get motor dust coming off too. But it, everything that's picked up from the ground goes through the filter. Then they might finish up with something like a Nilfus GM80, which is a very good filter and, and clean very good that way. Things to avoid, as far as I'm concerned, is anybody that does their own inspection, remediation, and post-testing. Post who knows what they're doing? They always pass their post-test, but it's very easy to pass a post-test. I told a remediation supervisor years ago, I said, you wouldn't even have to remediate it. Just set up your air scrubber, run it for a couple of hours, and do a, an air sample right next to it, and you pass. So it, it there's a difference between the types of testing if you're on the spores. And, and I realize there are many particles of mold that are beyond spores, but um, spores are, are the kind of the industry guidelines. And they're also a surrogate for everything else. If you have high spores, you've probably got everything else going along with it. And if you have no, nothing showing up, maybe it's good. We, we strongly recommend and research supports this aggressive testing which is not setting up a tripod and taking a sample because mold falls down due to gravity. So why not uh, sample where the mold is, stick your sampler on the floor and stir up the dust? Now, that's the way I sample um, to find the mold. So that's it. Another other mm -hmm. thing to, to avoid are really chemicals. That you, one of you also already mentioned that. I had a house a man that had to knock his house down once because of what was used in his house. He couldn't tolerate it. They loved the property, so they rebuilt on the property. And the, the remedi he had won the remediated this, and the guy said, oh, no problem with this. You know, nobody reacts to this. You know, so yeah, you, you want to be careful there. I have a oh. question for you, mate. If mm -hmm. you walked into someone's house that was highly sensitive, I mean, these people are, the whole family's extremely sick. Mm -hmm. You find a source. Would you recommend that they completely replace the materials or just spray and paint over it? It depends what the materials are and how much the mold is. If, if you're talking about structural issues like this, the whole basement ceiling, unless you rebuilt the house, you're not going to do that. So we, you, you're really stuck there. You have to have a vacuum and maybe spray, maybe wipe. It depends on the situation and then paint. I mean, I'm always recommending an encapsulant to put on the end because that it does a number of things. It it um, if anything's left, if any parts of mold are left behind, they get sealed in. And if they're like Caliwell, the encapsulant is uh, high, is um, what, what is it now? It's it's the lime-based calcium hydroxide. So it's it, you don't have to have a chemical uh, type of encapsulant. You could use something with calcium hydroxide, which is the white whitewash in a no VOC paint base, essentially. So at what point would you tell a family that their home is unlivable? I never tell them that. Yeah, because I don't know the answer. There are things that they can do. And and uh, my job is to present the data and, and you decide what you're going to do with that data. You know, it, it may be, I might say something like check with your doctor regarding continued residence until this is dealt with. And then after successful testing, I mean, my, I'm not a doctor. I don't know their situation. And, and if they're that sensitive, they probably are out of the house already. 
Yeah. So say if a family had consulted with you and they're utilizing your testing methods because it's so thorough as Mm -hmm. evidence in the court of law for whatever reason, would you ever write a letter for them stating that their house is unlivable due to these circumstances after all the measures have been taken that you've recommended? I don't, I, I would pass them on, as I said before, to an expert witness. And I don't know what they would say. I can give them informal advice based on my findings, but I don't know when a house becomes unlivable to them. I, I did, I did a, a house, an interesting case. It was a rental out in Ohio and they, they didn't have money to move elsewhere. And a, a well-meaning person took the house and it was like a, not a foreclosure, but a flipper of some sort. And he, he did the best he could even put wood cabinets in the kitchen you know, for rental. And yet I found evidence of hidden mold in wall cavities and ceiling cavities. And, and I suspected that that house probably should have been a knockdown rather than renovated, but he didn't know about mold. So he, he didn't know those things. But I'm not dealing, I'm not working for him. I'm working for the renter who can't move. So what do you do? So I suggested, and, and some of the worst exposures were her own furniture, which she brought in, but she, she could get rid of those and then do a thorough cleaning. I suggested something like a Panasonic for $400, they make an ERV. And I know I spoke against ERVs before, but this is a small one and it's, you could change the hose out. You can, you can maintain it to try to make her area a pressurized fresh air area. And that was, that was the only thing I could think of for those people. They told her how bad the house was, but I was working for her to try to make it something she could live in since she didn't have any place else to go. So that was an example of one that was, was just a house that shouldn't have been renovated. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, May. And we're tough cookies over here. So thank you for being patient with our questioning and (laughs) our commenting. But if our audience members wanted to work with you and consult with you or find any information on the resources that you provide, where can they find that? Well, the websites, I mentioned a couple of them, createyourhealthyhome.com, teach yourself environmental home inspecting. My my Email address is may, M-A-Y, at createyourhealthyhome.com. And the phone number is 717-273-1231. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. You certainly know more than I do in, in different areas. I'm just a simple mold inspector, and I've got to find the mold and tell people how to get rid of it. So, Absolutely. And thank you just for being so gracious and so lovely. And we appreciate your, your attendance here. Hey, mold doctors and experts, I'm speaking to you. Do you have patients that no matter how hard you try, you just can't help them in the way that they need? Are you treating mold but seeing people stay sick or get worse? There may be some key points about toxic mold exposure that you are missing in your practice that patients need in order to support the best clinical outcomes possible. You can achieve superior outcomes by understanding the following. Common failures of indoor mold testing and remediation, mold hypersensitivity, and residual contamination. If you struggle with any of these concepts in your practice, Exposing Mold is here to support you as you support your patients. We work with clinicians to help them understand the struggles of the hypersensitive mold-injured population. 
If you feel like you're not helping people the way you want, let us help you help others. Visit ExposingMold.com slash consultations and book your appointment with us today. Thank you everyone for joining us today. We had Mae Julian. She is a seasoned home tester. She tests for mold, bacteria, and EMF in people's homes. And she's been doing this for such a long time and just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, of course, you can see today we we agreed to disagree on certain things and that's totally fine. We're, <laughs> we know what we've experienced and, and other people that we've talked to and, and she has her own experience. And so we're all bringing that experience to the table here today. So please check out our Patreon page. If you want to become a member, we have some really awesome things happening in our groups behind the scenes and also check out our website. If you want to consult with us or anything else, find some resources. Everything is there for you laid out. Feel free to reach out and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.